Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John and Kyle. I'm a U.S. Marine, and the opinions expressed on the cast are my own, not official military policy. And the opinions expressed by me are also my own, not those of my employer or any other businesses I happen to be associated with. For today's episode, no special guests, just the love between the hosts. So, John, I think we're a little bit of a victim of our own success over the last couple of months and that we have had a string of really awesome guests come on the cast. And because of that, we've been missing out on updating a lot of the listeners, I think, on some great things that have happened. Well, maybe not great. That's a terrible choice of words, but some interesting updates to topics that have happened in the world of cybersecurity in some way, shape or form. And we have some updates to some stuff we've talked about in the past. I think I think we have 10 topics that we're going to cover today. My math might be a little off for all of our listeners at home, so we're going to do a little bit of a rapid fire push through of some cool stuff the backlog got a little bit long i was getting a little bit nervous and we need to get to it but i am really excited about this kyle kick us off awesome all right so for everyone listening to this as you drive or run or whatever it is you do where you're not next to a computer i want to remind everybody we're going to have a ton of links in the show notes so make sure you go to apple podcasts or spotify or wherever you're listening to this grab the show notes because it's going to have a big chunk of links email that to yourself or drop it into Notion or Evernote or whatever you're using to keep your notes these days because you're going to want to click on these. A lot of these are super cool and interesting reads, starting with our very first topic. So back in May, on the 2nd of May, Wired.com released a story called The Untold Story of the Boldest Supply Chain Hack Ever, which is a deep, long expose on the solar winds hack that has been covered on this podcast numerous times. Now, when you click the link to this article, I want everyone to understand there is what I can only describe as a spasmastic ASCII animation that repeats itself through this article, and it is so distracting. So I want everyone to just like turn the images off if you can or scroll quickly. But I cannot stress how good of a read this is, and it dives so deep into the actual investigation of what went wrong with this SolarWinds hack. This is up there on the level, as far as I'm concerned, with this is how they tell me the world ends. Yes. And, and listeners, I, I need you to know two things. One, we've already covered, give or take, some of the meat and potatoes of this. So we're not going to go into a lot of the details here. But I want you to know that Kyle pretty much messaged and called me immediately and considered a career path change because he was so <laughs> motivated by this article. If that isn't reason enough to go read, I think he just hit you with the second best reason to do it. I agree completely. This article is both infuriating, motivating, and it's really, really, really well-written. I can't stress this enough. So to Kim Zetter, the author of this article, I want to give a personal thank you for putting this together. It is super great. If it's okay for just a second, I want to read a couple of the key quotes that stood out to me from this article. So much so that I literally sent all of these over to John. As soon as I sent him the link, I like sent him the link as I got about four paragraphs in. It was like, oh my God, you got to read this. And by the time I had finished, I replied to him. This was 25 minutes later. It's a pretty good read uh, with all these quotes that I had highlighted. Yeah, quote, 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 quote. Never mind. Just read the whole thing. Exactly. That's pretty much where it came down to. Um, so I'm going to, again, highlight a couple different quotes that come out of this. First and foremost, the Department of Homeland Security found that most government agencies didn't even put their critical systems behind firewalls, according to Chris Krebs, who at the time of the intrusions was in charge of CISA, CISA. Brown, SolarWinds security chief, notes that the hackers likely knew in advance all of the servers that were misconfigured. All of the servers that were misconfigured. Another quote, 
Ordinarily, SolarWinds engineers would delete these snapshots during post-build cleanup. But for some reason, they didn't erase one snapshot. And if it had not been for this improbable existence of one snapshot, they would have no forensic data to ever track who did this. Pause for effect. Because they forgot to delete one snapshot, we actually know anything about this hack. And it's because a script failed to run, didn't clean up the backup, and no one ever noticed that the script failed, and the backup was just sitting in a folder all alone. Yeah, like, and by the way, this should sound eerily familiar to another one where <laughs> uh, I think this was covered in Sandworm, where mm-hmm. if it wasn't for a discom- disconnected domain controller, they would not have been able to recover. Yep. So I mean, like this this one-off, you know, by, by but a hope, a prayer, and a chance, mm-hmm. we finally got there. Like, that is the norm. Yep. And and bless all the digital forensics folks on the planet who were able to find these things and get this information. Truly remarkable. Next amazing quote. Investigators found that the intruders had first used an employee's VPN account on January 30th, 2019, a full year before the Orion code was compromised. The next day, they returned and siphoned 129 source code repositories from various SolarWinds software products and grabbed customer information, presumably to see who used which products. They knew exactly where they were going and exactly what they were doing. They also knew the Orion source code so well that the doppelganger DLL that they created was stylistically indistinguishable from the legitimate SolarWinds file, and they improved upon its code, making it cleaner and more efficient. Their work was so exceptional that investigators wondered whether an insider had helped the attackers, although they never found evidence of this. Pause. Okay. I, <laughs> I have to go here. This is how you know you are an awesome... I, like, and I, I do not want to give anybody any credit for this, but I, I can't help myself. You know you're a good hacker and you're like, man... I got this sweet exploit, but they're so instable. But this code is so ugly. They're, 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 it's so bad. I need to fix this. And like, this couldn't help themselves. Or they made a OPSEC decision and was like, you know what? This software running smoothly is our best chance not to get noticed. Let's tweak a couple things. Whoa. Yeah. The, I hope. In my heart of hearts, I want to think that this hacker saw that code and was like, "Ugh, these amateurs," and just had to fix it. Right? It was it was a moral imperative that they fix this code. But John, I I think in my brain of brains, the latter is likely the outcome. But either way, remarkable stuff. Of just not only was it exactly stylistically the same, but they improved the code. Yeah, I I wonder if there is a so you know doctors have the you know to do no harm kind of clause or whatever I forget the name of that <laughs> the I, Hippocratic oath. There you go, Hippocratic oath. Very, very, I wonder if there is there a hacker Hippocratic oath. If you see instable code, are you ethically bound even even as a hacker? Are you ethically bound <laughs> to fix it? The hacker's Hippocratic oath. I'm not. I, I'm not certain. I love the equal parts naivety and humor of this question. I'm gonna vote no, but that's just me. That's just me. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right, next part of this. Given the, and this is to John's heart of hearts right now, given the logging deficiencies on government computers, noted one source, it's possible the government still doesn't have and never will have a full view of what was taken by the attackers. John, I'm sure you're incredibly shocked by this statement. John has no comment. He's in stunned silence right now. Uh, Those of you who can't see, but his face has just lost all color and he's completely aghast. 
Oh, interesting. Uh, this microphone wasn't working for the last 30 oh, seconds. Oh, yes, 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 exactly. All right, uh, next quote. What's more, Microsoft's John Lambert says that judging by the attacker's tradecraft, he suspects that the SolarWinds operation wasn't their first supply chain hack. Some have even wondered whether SolarWinds itself got breached through a different company's infected software. SolarWinds still doesn't know, repeat, still doesn't know how the hackers first got into its network or whether the January 2019 incident was their first time. The company's logs don't go back far enough to determine. And last quote that I'm going to drop on here because, it's, again, so powerful. SolarWinds was the largest intrusion into the federal government in the history of the United States, and yet there is not so much as a report about what went wrong from the federal government. Uh, okay, I have two thoughts here. Yeah, go ahead. Doug. Thought yeah. number one. Uh, your previous quote sounded like marketing. Like, hey, uh, maybe the hack didn't originate with us. That, that is really, I'm, I'm pointing all my fingers to this with somebody else. Uh, that mm -hmm. sounds like a little bit of mar marketing uh, diffusion there. Um, and then the second part of that is dot, 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 that we know of. That's right. So take everything that Kyle just said and be like, oh, yeah, it was one snapshot away and blah, 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 uh, yep. that we know of. That we know of. So again, this solar winds thing is truly remarkable, everybody, and and we just keep pulling back layers of this onion years later now because we. I think this was one of the first topics we ever even covered on this podcast, John. I remember doing the the research in the wee hours of the morning as this was breaking. Um, it's just it's remarkable, it, and and as inexcusable as it is, inexplicable as it is, so common sense and and commonplace, unfortunately, these days. Yeah, but I, I think another takeaway here, though, is if you ever sit back and, and like Kyle and I have said, we almost make it an imperative of the podcast here. We're not here to laugh at people and we're not here no. to say, ha ha ha, and beat our chest and say, if only we were managing, this never would have happened. Uh, again, that is not the point. The point here nope. is to educate and illuminate and hopefully give you some takeaways, give you some muscle memory on what to look for in the future. But I think the main takeaway here is if you're not seeing that this isn't easy, just go through and ask yourself the question, just some of the stuff that he talked about, user uh, log editing for both applications and VPNs and authentication nope. Nope. and, 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 and. Then we're talking about usage of repos and auditing who is pulling how much out of repos and then doing some kind of analysis of how much they normally do to, to catch abnormalities and use usage of privileged credentials and software validation and some other stuff. If you're the person who thinks you got all of that perfect, wait till the next time Kyle comes back and talks about more that's involved in this yep. and ask yourself the question, do you really think that this is easy? Do you really think your tools are currently covering down on this? Yeah, I will reiterate strongly. This is not easy. It is player versus player all day, every day with a very intelligent adversary who's constantly coming for your flag constantly, right? There's, there's no escaping it. And I want to stress I am not making fun of anybody on this. I don't think that there is some magical panacea where I can sit on my high horse and say, oh, if I was working with someone, this never would have happened. No, like hacks happen. Uh, there's some old quote. I have no idea where to attribute this to at the moment, but basically you, 
any crime is possible if you're willing to pay the price for it, right? The strongest lock on your front door is not going to stop a tank. There's just nothing you can do if people are able to get access to things. Like safes are rated in man hours to break into the safe, not impenetrable, but just like with enough time, anyone's going to be able to break it. That's just how it is. I will say personally, and again, Kyle's opinions are his own and not those of anyone else. I am very disappointed in the response that happened from SolarWinds. I think that that was very poorly managed. But again, it's so easy for all of us to armchair quarterback that. Um, so anyway, I, I think we've uh, we've covered this one pretty well, John. So we're going to do a quick deep breath. <sighs> all right. Something happened earlier this year that I think is worth noting for fun reasons, but also for some scary reasons. So on the 3rd of May, the Google top-level domain registry announced a bunch of new top-level domains. And some of these are kind of funny, like they launched .dad, D-A-D, like father. And naturally, it's like jokes.dad are domains that have been registered since then. And I think that's kind of funny. And they also did uh, some titles. So like .esquire, .professor, .phd, which I think is kind of cool. That's kind of neat if you're going to make like a resume site and things like that. That's not terrible. Uh, and then they launched four others that they're calling tech-focused top-level domains, and they are .nexus, .foo, like foobar, F-O-O, and then the last two that scare me to death, which are .zip as a top-level domain, everybody, and .mov as a top-level domain. Now, before may... we get into the tech, I need, I need to call yeah. you a little bit out. Uh, foobar... F-U-B-A-R, not F-O-O. Uh, so, okay, okay. In the mil okay, this is actually a really good point. In the military, FUBAR is F-U-B-A-R. Uh, go watch Saving Private Ryan for all the jokes that you want yeah, in this. Yeah, it's the one acronym we're not going to say out loud what it is. That's right. But in programming, foo and bar are very common variable placeholders in coding and software development. And it is always F-O-O. Okay, touche, touche. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, John, I believe we we're both right. Okay, I'm taking okay, it. Okay, Moving on. Good, good. Let's go to the uh, nerd virtual, stuff. Virtual high five. Okay. So let's take a quick moment here and talk about why this is very interesting. Okay. You may think to yourself, you know, John, Kyle, why does .zip and .mov as a top-level domain scare you? And I want to provide a, a specific example for everybody here. When you have a top-level domain Lots of programs and applications will automatically understand that you are trying to send somebody to a top-level domain. For example, if you are in your favorite chat application or even in some email programs and you type, hi, I went to google.com today and I found something cool, it will automatically translate google.com into a clickable link. Like, and you can click it, and it knows to send you to google.com. Probably show you a graphic, show you something that you're used to seeing, all of those great things. Yeah, and oftentimes you can hover your mouse over that and it will actually go do a fetch of that URL and bring you back the content and display and like that little pop-up window. And there's lots of different UI uses for this kind of tool. And this is generally perfectly fine. But, and full credit to a person known as Ludvik TR on Reddit for writing most of this up into a very elegant couple paragraphs that I'm going to macro summarize here. But because this auto conversion of top level domains and it will do this for almost all of them if you go type like uh i want dominoes.pizza or something like that it will replicate that because uh dot pizza is a top level domain hilarious and amazing and i love that 
But .zip and .mov are file extensions. And lots and lots and lots of people understand them as file extensions. So let's just say that someone sends you a bunch of text and says, hi, you need to download documents-backup.zip from our intranet portal. Well, since .zip is a top-level domain now, there is a chance that that email program or that text program will convert documents-backup.zip to a clickable link. And you, as a user, may think, ah, I click that link and I download that from like the intranet at my company or the file share or whatever. Well, no, that is not what we are talking about here because what will happen is it will send you to HTTP or HTTPS colon slash slash documents dash backup dot zip the website through DNS and the HTTP protocol. And then let's say that someone has registered that domain and provides a file as the instant 301 redirect to download from that site. Which a hacker is going to do. Absolutely. Definitely going to do. Absolutely going to happen in every way, shape, or form. And because of this, now you have a file that you think you downloaded from the intranet or your local file share. But in reality, that file, which you have no idea what's in it, came from a independent third-party website that you actually did not even know you touched. So... This gets a little bit weird because you think you're getting something from something you trust and you're not. And you as a user will basically have no warning, no control. And the default behavior of the application, again, may allow you to do something truly scary. And there's a few examples of this. Uh, uh, A a very famous lawyer for a very famous politician once uh, hilariously mistyped a URL into a tweet. And of course, someone happened to immediately register the domain for that tweet and serve up content that was very contrary to said lawyer's political candidate. I'm I'm tiptoeing around a lot here, but I'm pretty sure everyone can understand what I'm talking about. Uh, This, but now targeting every basically non-educated user of how this works throughout anywhere. And the risk of this, again, is that people are always your biggest risk, right? I feel strongly that anyone who builds an application that automatically summarizes top-level domains would do well to never, ever automatically summarize a top-level domain of .zip or .mov. But that requires a lot of people in a lot of different companies to implement a lot of change just to protect the average uneducated user. I like to think that they should be doing this, but there is nothing requiring them to do so. And therefore, my uh, lazy person's Occam razor would lead me to believe that there will be gaps. There will be gaps. And, and let me just, I, I came in knowing that I wanted to say this and you teed me up perfectly without us even talking about it. When you talk about your gaps and you look at your security posture, you might be going through in your head right now, okay, how am I going to handle this? Maybe through your proxy, maybe through some other stuff or whatever. Keep in mind, your threat model is not just your side of the equation. If you are selling something, if you are whatever, there are going to be people outside of your enterprise, right? Personal users, whether it's family members, whether it's clients, whatever, on the other side, and no amount of your security appliances are going to fix these types of problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a little bit scary to, to me kind of reads a little bit not well thought through. Agree. And I will give a a little bit of my own personal feedback here is that I actually think in the name of good security, 
and in the name of never trusting any links that you ever get outside of what you type into a URL bar or from a trusted source, again, a chat application, everybody is not a trusted source. I actually think that applications should not ever do URL summarization, or if they do, they should do it in some form of inline markup where it you know, gives you the, the open brackets with HTTP, whatever. It shows you exactly where that link will take you. I'm in favor of that. But again, I doubt that my opinion will be heard by lots of product developers and UI and front-end developers who go, oh, but that's going to look ugly. It's like, yep, I want it to look very ugly when you are compromising my security. Or legacy code, or, 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 or. Mm -hmm. Pl mm -hmm. Plenty yeah, of reasons infinite. to be worried. Yeah, infinite surface area. Okay, so there you have it. Uh, go register your .dad domain with something funny or your .phd if you have earned such a title. Uh, I think Kyle.professor was already taken, which is really unfortunate for me. If New Balance has not registered newbalance.dad they have really missed the boat <laughs> if you're listening new balance there you go all right uh we're going to talk about a couple other things that have affected some very large groups of users on the internet so the very first one is a new vulnerability that was just announced a couple days ago uh we are recording this podcast on july 28th this article was written july 27th so this is fresh 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 news, which is a new attack that's called a Zen bleed attack. And so on AWS, AWS has a specific type of CPU called a Zen CPU. Now, these are um, AMD processors, but they're primarily used inside of AWS as their primary virtualization CPU. There is a new vulnerability that has come out that effectively allows a user to escalate and run any malicious code that they want on that environment. Now, I'm massively oversimplifying because this one in particular is very nerdy about how it works it's using uh, a term yep. uh, and we, we don't we do not need to hurt brains no, on this one no but, actually it uses yeah. a term called fuzzing and performance counters and a, a bunch of interesting serialization like you gotta understand how cpus work to understand this and so just realize it's bad and it affects something like 60 percent of the vms running on aws now there's good and there's bad about this i.e bad Vulnerability detected, 60% of CPUs vulnerable, i.e. super duper bad. But here's what's cool about hyperscalers. And, you know, coming from the Google world, and the AWS world, and the Azure world, I have deep respect for all the major hyperscalers. Uh, not really so much Oracle, but hey, whatever. Now, they run really efficient behind-the-scenes infrastructure platforms. And so when a new vulnerability like this comes out and affects a huge number of users and a huge number of Im Im implementation strategies, they actually can roll out those changes really fast, and they have teams that are dedicated to this. So you're in a really good position in most cases uh, where I think that AWS has already patched this across their entire infrastructure. Now, and to, to call back to what we've talked about in, I think, our first or second podcast in the shared responsibility model, the beautiful mm -hmm. part of this is this is not your responsibility. When we're That's talking right. about processors on their hardware, not your responsibility. That's right. Now, um, if you Google this again, it's called Zenbleed. AWS Zenbleed is the search term you want to use. Pretty much every article we can find on this also has the how to test if you're vulnerable code. So you just use lscpu, which is a great little Linux-based command line tool that allows you to look at your CPU status and the model information. And there's a specific uh, hex code that you're looking for to know if you're vulnerable. And then you can look at the version of that code and you can see if it's been patched in your systems or not. But again, from everything that we are reading currently, and for sure, by the time anyone hears this podcast, since we're recording a day after this was announced, it will have already been fixed across AWS's infrastructure. But just again, something to think about, about 
how these vulnerabilities can impact the hyperscalers, but you build your response mechanism to be fast, and there's appears to be quite fast. So kudos to AWS. All right, the next one that we're going to talk about is very similar, but instead of impacting AWS, impacts a very popular piece of Linux uh, software called Ubuntu. You may have heard of it. Some people call it Ubuntu. I don't know. I've always called it Ubuntu, so that's what we're going to call it on this. But effectively, there is a new pair of CVEs that are being called Game Overlay. Uh, game over, parentheses, lay, because it uses the overlay feature set of Ubuntu to escalate privileges. So in a nutshell, this vulnerability makes it possible to craft an executable file that has scoped file capabilities, which is a specific term in here, that trick the Ubuntu kernel into copying it into a different location that has unscoped capabilities, i.e. giving you root-like privileges to do whatever you want by just touching a file. Now, touching is a specific term inside of Linux, which means you actually interact with that file and it triggers your permission sets and checks if you have the right permissions to do something. And this is a really interesting little piece. There's uh, a cool couple animations that are on YouTube that show exactly how this works. But um, this has already, again, been fixed inside of the publicly available Ubuntu code and they pushed out, hey, recommendations for everyone to patch. But this now to talk about John's responsibility model. This is not a hyperscaler's responsibility model. This is anyone running this operating system. It's a responsibility. So if you haven't patched, you're still vulnerable to this, and it's real easy. If anyone has any access to your system, even scoped access to your system, they can use these vulnerabilities to escalate to get root privileges with little to no effort cannot stress how kind of trivial this one is. Yeah. Do uh, you know where all the Linux is in your environment? <laughs> right. Dot, dot, when, dot. Okay. Yeah, and when's the last time you patched? So uh, these vulnerabilities were discovered not too long ago, but again, they are saying, Ubuntu is saying that they have all their kernels, all their software updated as of July 24th. So if you haven't patched your Ubuntu-based system since July 24th, 2023, pretty please the cherries on top, go patch your Linux. Uh, simple commands, very easy to do, usually doesn't require a reboot, yay Linux. So please do that. And one last note, this impacts every version of Ubuntu since 18.04 LTS. That's long-term support. So if you've got anything from before that, this shouldn't impact them. But also, if you're running anything before 18.04, <clears throat> that was five years ago. You should be running a newer version of Ubuntu. Pretty please with cherries on top. Which certainly no one would possibly be doing, Kyle. Nope. Nope. And uh, I really love Ubuntu, by the way, because all of their versions of their software are like obscure animal names. So the latest version of Ubuntu is called Lunar Lobster, which I think is one of the best ones they've ever done. Awesome. All right. Now I've got one little update from a topic that we have previously covered. So you may remember if you're a longtime listener way back in July of last year, uh, actually July 15th, 2022, we did an episode on PyPy, which was basically a online location for sharing Python scripts and a repository, and it does a bunch of other stuff as well. But they were kind of controversial in that they came out and said, if you do not have multi-factor authentication enabled on your account, we're going to shut you down. Well, guess what they just did a few weeks ago? They shut everybody down, and they are unapologetic about it, which is kind of amazing. They basically have taken a stand to say, we told y'all, if you didn't enable multi-factor authentication, we're shutting you down. And that's what they did, which, again, I got to say, is super bold. And I kind of applaud them for, for this step. 
I don't think it makes it easy for people who, you know, maybe aren't truly aware of how this is going to impact them. But gotta gotta give them credit on this one, John. Yeah, we recorded an entire episode about whether we thought this was the right thing to do. <laughs> uh, you can right. go back and listen to it. Uh, this is the follow-up basically saying, you know what? The, and before they just said, hey, we're going to do this. I forget what it was, like the top 10 or 10% uh, of downloads. And then there was one of the users who's like, oh, cool. I just killed my package and restarted it. So he moved all the way to the bottom. Um, again, hacker's going to hack. Uh, yeah. So that was really that was really cool. But now they're just like, nope, nope, nope. And again, talking through you know the solar winds and some of the other stuff, the reliance on this code uh, you know, I understand the arguments, but I'm with Kyle unapologetically. I'm like, you know, probably the right thing. Yep. All right. And now I get to take the mic and, and take over here. So uh, this. Are we going to say take it? I got it. There you go. All yes. right. Our first cadence. Okay. Yeah, to- <laughs> totally, totally raining up here. So this is an article from the Daily Beast and talking about UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, uh, failing to disclose Chinese investment. So immediately there's like, oh, this has my attention. And I grabbed, uh, this might've been the first article I, I tossed in our backlog of like, we should discuss this. And when it first was discussed, it's like, hey, uh, UC Berkeley took 220 million from China and didn't tell the government about it. And I was like, Whoa. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Did you say $220 million? Million. I put put the pinky in the air, pinky Dr. Evil okay. style. Yeah. That's $220 small million. Dollars. That's so uh, tiny. Right. And you're like, this is terrible. Uh, and I am not as concerned about the details of this article, but more the kind of ethical concerns and the back and forth here. So at first, it's like, hey, a Brinks truck worth of money showed up to UC Berkeley, and they just didn't tell anybody. Like, that looks really bad. And then the article basically had to kind of print a bit of a retraction and say, like, well, about that, though, um, they're going to do a campus in China, and there's a $220 million investment as part of that campus and so it gets a little, you know, there, there's kind of like the ethical tug of war keeps going back and forth on this. And you're like, this is clearly wrong to, uh, I mean, can you really blame these guys? I, I think is the general idea here. And, and I think it just highlights and read the article your, for yourself, come to your own conclusions, but it highlights just some of the complexity in the world that we're living in. So do we want research universities only being nationalistic? Should we only Mm -hmm. have American scholars collaborate on technical detail? I think clearly the answer there is no. And then, okay, should we collaborate with the Chinese? Obviously, cases could be made either way there, right? Um, But then you kind of get into, well, also very heavy investors in this campus are several tech companies banned by the U.S. government. Then you're like, ooh, uh, this is getting less hypothetical and more like, ooh, this could, this could be a serious problem. Money is hard to track uh, when you start running it through companies and investment strategies and all this sort of stuff. But housing, what other I, countries, uh, exactly. I think in all ways this is worth looking into. I will generally say that moving hundreds of millions of dollars around will change behavior. And that's what concerns me. 
and change behavior in tech. Um, right. So yeah, definitely kind of worth looking into. And, and to be honest, I don't really want to go into much more detail here just to kind of point out like, Hey, here's, here's an interesting ethical thing. Uh, you know, if you're sitting down and you're sitting outside watching the rain come down and pondering some things, this is the article you want to read and ask yourself, Hey, how do I feel about this? And I sincerely hope that the educational institution receiving that much money, uh, is able to put at least a few people on making sure that it's being ethically used. I concur with that assessment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm safe. I feel safe saying that. Yeah. That's so, what I would do. I mean, yes. <laughs> so I, I am taking my baton and I am moving on. So the, aye, aye. the next article is about a Chinese APT and a technique called living off the land. So we are LOL, which made me LOL. Uh, we have not talked about this in the podcast thus far, but there are several things about this advisory to include the advisory itself that are pretty awesome. So let's start by the, the advisory itself. So again, in the show notes, so you can pull that up. So this is an advisory that comes from the U.S.'s NSA, CISA, FBI, the Australian Signals Directorate, CSE in Canada, and New Zealand's Cybersecurity Center, plus the UK's National Cybersecurity Center. So... If you pay Just a couple people. So if you pay attention to tech at all, you're like, okay, that is an awful lot of big names. You officially have my attention. The fact that they put all of these together, like, okay, got it. So this is a joint cybersecurity advisory from May 24th, 2023. It's hosted on defense.gov. And again, link is in the show notes for you. So this is talking specifically about APT Volt Typhoon, and that is Advanced Persistent Threat, which we're generally talking about nation-state level hacking groups. So with Volt Typhoon, which is a Chinese state-sponsored APT, and this APT specifically highlights critical infrastructure and and some other some other sectors, but mainly they're targeting critical infrastructure. So the threat actors for this APT are using live off the land techniques specifically so they can evade EDR, which we, we've talked about in previous podcasts, to reduce the logging. So Kyle, question one, have you heard of LOL before? What is that? Only, and, and why could that help me evade EDR or should I take this one? So this one gets a little interesting. The concept of living off the land is that instead of grabbing a hacker's toolkit or using a very specific tool that's going to generate very specific logs that are easy to look at, you basically use native commands that are available to you to replicate that function. So um, you could drop like a packet sniffer on a computer, but that's going, or, you know, on a server in some way, shape, or form, but someone's going to see that you dropped a file or an executable and you ran that executable, like that's going to create logs. Or you could just use the native Linux commands to get the same level of information, though not as sophisticated, but then you could capture that just through the output of the terminal and it would generate far fewer logs and far less suspicious activity. So you're more likely to go undetected. That's like one example. Exactly. So they are using this technique of living off the land, i.e. they are very purposefully about, hey, they don't want to get caught by the different security appliances that we've installed on our computers. And they're trying not to get caught, but also trying to make their way through networks. So some things that I thought were particularly interesting. So the first thing was 
they used compromised Soho, that small office, home office devices. So think like you're, and I don't want to put any brand names out there, but think cheap router, your home that, router. cheap, yeah. cheap, you know, like the router that you have at your home or that you've seen it at small businesses, uh, those types of routers. What they do is they pop those devices and then they install software on those devices so that whenever they go into your network, all of that traffic looks like it's coming from these Soho routers. So if you're thinking from a Defender standpoint, oh, I've got my firewall with a block from all the Chinese IP or every every different IP address that an APT is known to come from, we're blocking all of that. Well, this particular group just popped a bunch of Soho devices in the US so that they could come in that way. So whatever threat model you had of looking for source IPs, not going to work because it's coming from a bunch of residential devices, which, which is an interesting technique. And they even, in the advisory, they say, hey, uh, to help us with this, owners of Soho devices, so all of us, listen up. What they're asking that you do is like, please be careful about your management interfaces. Try not to expose them to the internet uh, because they will be used. And then also do your best with zero trust principles, which, you know, that is pretty difficult and a huge ask for all of us at home. I think that, I that is that is beyond a huge ask for the average populace. Like yes. That is science fiction. Yeah. That more than agree. One tenth of one percent of people will ever even attempt to take that activity, let alone do it in a proficient way. Concur, yes. So it says maintain the high, the, the next recommendation, maintain, maintain the highest level of authentication and access controls possible. <laughs> let, let me say this another way. If you buy a router, please go ahead and change the password. And most, what? most of, yeah, from the default, that would be really but, helpful. But I don't cover this before. On the device, how am I supposed to yeah. remember it? We've otherwise. covered this before, but you know, why not again? <laughs> Please change the default password from your device. If you can Google, hey, what's the password for insert your device here? Change that, change that, change that now. Um, and then most of them now are doing pretty well with some sort of 2FA, hey, do you have a phone or authenticator app or something like that uh, to validate this logon? Please click that box too because this is a kind of big deal as part of this stuff. Okay, so the next thing that we have is in this advisory, they listed a bunch of callback ports, file names, and commands that were issued. So you can look through there and see the types of commands that they were using, which I generally found fascinating. Maybe not all the audience of this cast will, but it was pretty cool that all these people worked together and published, hey, here's what we've all seen. Here's what we have in common. Some recommendations that they had was to very closely look at your admin privileges and command usage. Uh, you should look at your user logs as well, because one of the things they talked about was generally coming in. And again, so it's a long uh, long article. You'd It'd be really good to read through it. I recommend it. If you're not going to do that, though, they basically said like, hey, they start by looking for normal logins. And if they can find even a user login, then they use some other tools to find other logins, find commonly used passwords, use those to compromise other accounts and eventually make their way to an account that has admin privilege. Once they get on those accounts, then they start doing the fancy things. Again, the types of commands that they use are all included in this article and you can take a look at those. I also want to call that in this article, what's really nice when you get these joint environments to publish is that 
the latter ends, the, the, the tail ends of these articles are often gold mines of references, links to other documents, and ways to tie this back into things that we see all day. Um, the references page is really cool in that it points you to other documents that have been recently published by a variety of these uh, national-based sources. And it also ties everything that this APT is focused on back to the MITRE attack framework, which I think is super cool as someone who has had to deal with a lot of MITRE before because it shows you kind of a reverse engineer of they're exploiting this. And if you follow the MITRE attack framework, you should do this to mitigate it, which is kind of a neat way if you are a practitioner to almost have a to-do list to go through and check on this and see if you're being impacted or ways that you can go forth to hopefully mitigate or uh, reduce the attack surface. Thank you. Additionally, one thing they talked about was the use of port forwarding. So if you're telling your son and kind of what does this mean and why do I care about this? So what they end up doing is they compromise hosts and then they have those hosts and essentially say like, hey, you can come in on this port and go out on another port. What does this mean? Why do I care about this? They're using it to bypass firewall po uh, policies. So if, for instance, just to pick a random port, if you're like, hey, my org doesn't allow port 8080 inbound, I'm not susceptible to this. Hmm. Unless they have compromised any host on your network and set up port forwarding, then they can come in a port that your firewall does allow and flip over to 8080 internally. So... Just because you've got your firewall, and again, this is why people set up zero trust and all this stuff, just because you think you're covered in the firewall, and I'm, I'm trying to help you mentally update the threat model, uh, maybe you're not. And this is showing an APT clearly has thought through all of this stuff, and here's some of the techniques that they're using. And to double click on that again, building a beyond corp or zero trust model is the way to mitigate through this. Border firewalls are great for some things, but realize that they are not the panacea, and there are literally thousands of ways to compromise most border firewall security setups. So you have to have a defense in depth level strategy to protect every device along the chain of custody. Yep, and here's some in the wild proof that we're not just exactly. spewing some cool bullet points <laughs> that we read somewhere. Like, this is a thing. Uh, mm -hmm. So I already talked through a little bit about how uh, they're grabbing user creds, but I want to go a little bit further on that and just say, you might think to yourself, hey, I had a user account popped, I caught it, I changed the password, I'm good. That is not necessarily the case because what we're seeing from the TTPs here, it's pop user account, look for other artifacts that could lead me to another user account or admin account that I can pop. So just remember, even if you can trace every single thing that happened on this one user, remember, they're looking to move to other users, so your threat model doesn't end when you fix that one account. I also want to call out a very specific anti-pattern that John's covering here, but I want to be very blatant about it. The concept that a hacker is going to compromise a user's account and then covet and hold on to that password for weeks not using it is absolute fantasy. Thus, why we have things like you must change your password every 90 days is an anti-pattern to security. If someone is going to gain access to a user account and find a password that works, that's all they need to do. They will run some program or some script that gives them the next thing they need. And then the fact that they compromised that user your password is completely irrelevant. And you can change the password all day long. You can delete the user account. It doesn't matter. If they got in 
they can leave something behind or jump somewhere else and you'll never track that down. Or, you know, if you keep your logs and you do your proper digital forensics, you, you may, but just know the cat's out of the bag. If it worked for a millisecond, it's done. Shots fired. And the last thing I want to cover for the article that I thought was awesome. So to kind of summarize the tools they give you at the end of the article, not, not just saying, hey, here's what this APT is. Here's what we saw them do. Here are the patterns. Here's what they've historically done. Here's what's interesting and new about what they're doing here. They also give you a complete list of TTPs that they used, commands that were issued, open source hacking tools that were used when they were. Most of the time they're living off the land, but if they needed to use an open source hacking tool, they told you the ones that they've seen used. They've talked about command executions, file paths used, hashes of files that were used, user agent strings, and Yara rules to detect the stuff. Uh, I I just want to, you know, because it's a, a podcast, give, give a silent golf clap to... Yes. The work that went into putting this together, like well done to the joint cybersecurity advisory team uh, that did this. Very cool from a learning perspective. I think also equally cool from a, if you're a defender, you're not just throwing your hands up and saying, thanks, now I'll work on fixing all of this. And anyone in the cybersecurity community here who has to publish from time to time, even just internal documentation for your own company, Take a look at the format of this. They pack a serious punch into 24 pages. And I mean, uh, for an APT announcement, 24 is not a lot of pages. And for something that gets pretty in-depth and gives you a ton of resources at the beginning, the middle, the end, and tells a good story, this is a this is a darn good 24-page read. So check yeah. it out. I, I got through that very quickly. That was probably yeah. one of the easiest 24 pages I've ever read. Uh, this is a good example of good. Good example of good. Ex- exactly. Let me get to... A not so good example. Uh, pr- pretty good <laughs> documentation, but not so not so great. So this this article is from Microsoft's blog, and you've definitely heard about this in the news. The Microsoft Exchange 365 breach. Uh, this article was published on 14 July 23. Uh, again, on the Microsoft blog. Again, talking about a China-based threat actor. This threat actor generally concentrates around espionage. And what they did in this case was they forged access tokens so that they could grab emails, read them, pull them down. This was from 25 different organizations that included government agencies. They included a heat map for when they saw all the activity here. And apparently almost all the activity was from the hours to nine to five in China. That's shocking, John. Yeah. Uh, you know, hackers got families and got to eat and, you know, need to hit the gym too. There, yeah, there, there is a graphic. Look at it. I, I found it somewhat giggle worthy. So uh, they, they have termed this hacking group Storm 0558. Uh, they generally work through credential harvesting, phishing, and OAuth token attacks. Again, we've talked about OAuth previously in the cast. You can go back and listen to that. Um, some things that are worth knowing. They mentioned that the threat actors were keenly aware of the target's environment, logging policies, authentication requirements, other policies, and procedures. So the people who were hacking this knew Microsoft's O365 environment incredibly well. And the tooling and reconnaissance that they had set up there showed that these were not script kiddies just messing around. They clearly knew exactly what they were doing. And we just talked about an APT from Violent Typhoon 
Uh, and there is some overlap with those groups noted in this article as well. So this is not, again, this is not amateurs. These are the pros. Here's where things got a bit scary. So as the and Microsoft was pretty honest about this. So I, I give them relatively high marks for what they've put out here. Although either I missed it or I'm feeling a bit lacking, but they kind of talked about like, hey, there were some user tokens that were forged. I wonder how they did this. And then they talked about kind of going into it and like, did the users mess up or did they, they thought that it w- this was essentially data scraping from the user devices where they somehow got on the user device, scraped a token and then used that token to log onto the email and download everything. Uh, and then they were like, ah, as, as we did a little bit more digging, a Azure AD, that's Azure Active Directory, so like the major AAA system for Microsoft's cloud, used an enterprise signing key to make these forged authentication tokens. Kyle, are you concerned at all hearing that? We've talked a lot about supply chain compromise, and we've talked a lot about... um, <clears throat> Solar ones, <clears throat> uh, having access to root level credentials and core capabilities. When I think of a managed service provided by a large hyperscaler that has its core authentication mechanism creating seemingly without the permission of its owners and operators tokens that can do all sorts of crazy things, that deeply concerns me. Yeah, I was you know, quietly inside of my own head saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Because uh, that is kind of a big deal. Uh, there is a bit of a silver lining. So they said it was, they were able to use a Azure AD signing key, i.e. the the master lock of the system, if you will, uh, because of a validation error in their code. But the good news about this is, is it was pretty rough. So... Uh, they took advantage of a loophole, but think of it as like this this master key that they use had some radiation dipped on it. So they were able to, ver- once they figured out, ooh, here's what they did, it was really easy to go back and see every single time that they did it and where. Uh, so I guess silver lining? <laughs> I mean, I will always prefer... Uh- adversarial techniques that are easy to trace and easy to use logs to figure out. So yay. Thanks us. Thanks Microsoft. Um, I I also want to call out uh, Azure's been in the news a bunch this year for some pretty not great breaches. And, you know, Microsoft in general is one of the major hyperscalers and, and cloud providers with Azure and they get a bad rap for security, but I want everyone to just realize that's because the things that are getting compromised are the same exact things that happen with Windows. Like Windows is complicated software that's used everywhere, that's been built in so many different ways, that has so many zero days associated with it. So it's it's tough. It's tough when you run inherently. When It's tough when the software that runs the core of your business was not built with a security-first posture. I'll probably be polite about that. Um, and... Having to then support that at scale for global users is also tough. So again, everyone that's out there has a consumer-based choice that they can make. Thumbs up from Kyle. All right. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say from a 
best I can tell from a speed and a transparency standpoint, it, you got to give them some points for, they got this out there quickly and they were very clear about, Hey, we, you know, we investigated, we found, we did. Um, and it would have been pretty easy to take the edge off. And I don't think they did too much, like maybe a little bit, but not, not too much. No, and I, I will say this. Microsoft security teams are very, very good at what they do. Very, very competent. And let's face it, they get a lot of practice. So it's it's tough when un- inherently what you're securing is going to give you a lot of job security. So again, I, I, again, Kyle's unbiased. I'm, I'm unbiased. 100%. 100% unbiased. No bias to be had <laughs> as John laughs and doesn't say anything. Okay, my composure is regained. So <laughs> uh, la- last article. Uh, so... Kyle took a little bit of a shot at Microsoft here. I will give them a little bit of kudos. So article about from Bleeping Computer, one of our uh, fan favorites here. Woo-hoo. Microsoft releases Defender IoT. So this article from 26 July 23, Microsoft announces a new Defender for IoT feature that will allow analyzing the firmware of embedded Linux devices like routers for security vulnerabilities and common weaknesses. So wh- why do you care about this? Something that may happen if, like we talked about in the previous article, uh, if you have your Soho router that a good number of them are going to be based on Linux, if someone compromises those things, one of the things they may do is change the firmware. That way, whatever you do from now on, like Kyle said, they, quote, leave something behind. So what Defender is essentially letting you do is check for when that has happened. When your firmware has been fudged with and on clearly with Defender, this is going to be on a long on a long and large scale, you'll be able to look for and find things that have happened. Uh, so uh, something I've been thinking about a lot of, hey, there's, when we're talking IoT, hundreds of thousands or if not hundreds of millions of these things in your environment how are we going to be able to manage this at scale tools like this are really exciting because manually there's there is no way you could do that automation at a minimum but like incredibly efficient incredibly effective visual automation is the only way you could get after this Uh, Some of the stuff that they talk about being able to help with, uh, software bill of materials, so they'll be able to go through all the different open source packages on your devices to include firmware and other type stuff and make sure that all of that matches up and good. They'll be able to look through the latest CVEs and make sure that you're in compliance. They'll do binary hardening, certificate analysis, uh, public and private key analysis, and some uh, password hash extraction to make sure that the way that your user account and privileged accounts are stored are not insecure as well. All of which I read through and I was like, okay, if, if we can run this thing and have a relatively high level of assurance, it's actually doing all of this stuff and doing it well on a repeatable fashion. That is very exciting to me. Kyle, do you share my enthusiasm? I do. And anything that helps uh, the average practitioner do their job better or take a scan of something, that is hard to protect or at least hard to detect might be compromised is super cool. So I, I agree with you. Double thumbs up, kudos and coffees to everybody that was involved in this. All right. We met, we are getting really good at this because we've made it through almost on perfect time Woo, with just enough time left for Kyle's hot take. 
Hit us oh. with it, will you? There's there's been so many in this episode in particular because we've had to to run through stuff. I think that it's important that we as a community continue to highlight the repeatable nature of a lot of the things that we're seeing. And my hot take for today is going to be it's probably something that I've done a hot take on in the past, but pretty please with cherries on top. Patch your software and have a way to respond quickly because this stuff is inevitable. There is just no way to protect everything. And so the best thing that you and your cybersecurity team can do is be fast at remediation, at, at understanding what it takes for you to patch things or to replace things or to relaunch things or to update things, right? Take a playbook from... Microsoft in their response of this, or take a playbook from AWS in their response, or, or Ubuntu in their response, where you know it takes hours, potentially, for them to just roll out changes to millions of devices. That's where you need to get. And if you over-invest on your ability to respond quickly to threats, you will be in a much better place. Dear listeners, thanks for joining us. You can connect with us on social media by going to Twitter and following at USMC underscore T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. That's at USMC underscore Task Force Phoenix. For as long uh, as Twitter remains a thing. I was just going to say, John, it's X now, buddy. It's is X. It, you got to go to is X. It X. Number one, com. is it X? Two, you've totally broken into my pre-canned outro. <laughs> Our editor is Sarah Clarkson. Marketing support is provided by Jake Osborne. You can support the cast by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review and accompanying comment. And with that, we are out.